Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Unapologist Podcast, where the best PD happens in your backyard. Tonight, we have the Tim Hortons of Canadians Coffee, Christopher Polson. If I'm the Tim Hortons of Canadian Coffee, well, you, my friend, are the embodiment of the double-double. Oh, I will take it. The most popular drink. I've never had that title. Thank you. Vito McKenzie on this end. <laughs> How are we doing that this week, Chris? Um, Vito, I wish I could say I was doing good, but not too good this week since the last time we, we spoke. Uh, oh. I tested positive for COVID-19 and oh. over the last week I have been running the gambit of many different symptoms that have not been enjoyable by any means. Uh, it has not been fun whatsoever. However, I am very, very pleased to report um, that at the time we're recording now, I am you know, the worst of my symptoms have gone away. I'm feeling with the exception of, I don't, I know I do not have a sense of smell. I do not have a sense of taste. Um, I have some severe exhaustion. Um, but aside from that, uh, the cough is basically gone. Um, a lot of the respiratory issues are basically gone and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling largely pretty good. Um, there was about three days, four days where, I was not doing well at all. Basically, from the night that we last recorded until about, you know, this past Monday, uh, I was not in a good way. It was not fun. Um, it is not enjoyable. It is something that is very serious. And I, you know, I hope that as few people as possible, I hope that no one gets it. And I hope that as a, as a country and as a world, we can get through this uh and 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 be safe and, and go back to our lives how are you doing buddy what, oh. hey hey what a great what a great lead in to see how Vito's doing <laughs> well i'm just very happy to come to the other side and i am happier with us in that you didn't suffer the more extreme absolutely i would i had would definitely uh, um, what happens would be called this? a mild case <laughs> which is wild when you're describing your symptoms so thank you chris uh my week has been it's been fun I just just another week in paradise over here. Like I, I've been very fortunate. I have a wonderful class, uh, my seventh octomester. And I feel the bad. Octomester. I feel bad because everyone is so tired and this is such a good group. And I don't feel like we're getting the most out of it. Um, because you get those nice, wonderful classes that you're like, I would eat this up and we'd all eat this up, but we're so tired to even deal with it that it's just like, let's just grind it through. So we we're doing well. And um, everything's good. But you know what? Hey, enough about us. Like no one, been, no, how long have we been talking no, for? We've Way been too long. For three hours. No one comes to <laughs> no one comes to hear about Vito and Chris. Even if I am the double double. <laughs> you are. You're the double double and you're an extra large double double. Roll up the rim, and you know what? You won. <laughs> What, 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 why don't we get onto a real winner here? Somebody with actual intelligence behind them. Like we got a guest with us tonight, Chris. Like I'm, I, I'm, I know you're stoked to hear from this guest. I am super pumped to hear for, from her. Uh, we have someone with us. Where do we start? Just so many things to, to, to say about her. Uh, I'm going to just hit the highlight reel here. 
she was a professor. She's a PhD. She, she was a professor at the University of Chicago where she did her postdoctorate. Doctors then, in the house. Doctors in the house. And uh, she was a senior researcher at the Higher Education Quality Council of Ontario, a defense scientist for the Canadian Department of National Defense. She's currently an assistant professor at the School of Psychology at the University of Ottawa, where she's also the director of the Cognition and Emotion Laboratory. Uh, she's spoken on number of events has published many works and you know just the fact that she opens her mouth automatically you know she is way smarter than the, the two of us combined on any good day we have with us dr aaron maloney dr aaron welcome to the show welcome to the show <laughs> hi guys thank you and i will i will say that i think you guys are uh overly generous with your intro <laughs> but but I appreciate it, so I'm going to take it. Thank you. Oh, well, no, that's why we bring people on the show, because everyone's better than us, and we want to learn from them. So How do you how do you think we're going to get any better? We can't improve unless we hear from you. <laughs> I, I, don't know that I, I don't know that I can make any improvements on a double-double. Like, I... I don't... I, you know, I think there's some things you don't mess with. But... Uh, you hear well, that, I, everyone? I, don't mess with Vito. No, no, we're going to mess with the program tonight. That's what we're all about. We're unapologetic about it. But uh, Aaron, thank, thanks again for coming on. We, we're really excited to have you on here. And with all our guests, we always ask them, tell us your story. Like, what got into your research and the path that you took in life? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I I guess I'll preface this with, I, it's not super exciting. So I apologize that I don't have like an amazingly exciting story. But... Uh, so I started off, I went to university with the intention of being uh, an elementary school teacher, um, realized partway through that I'm not stellar with kids. Uh, I don't have the patience that it requires to, to do a great job as a teacher, and I have the utmost respect for every teacher I've ever met, I think. Um, but I'm really interested in education, right? I'm, I'm really interested in understanding how kids learn. So I realized that for me, a better fit was to hang out in a laboratory, uh, which is now where I spend all my time. So I first started out being really interested in understanding um, how people perform in high pressure situations, right? So trying to understand how people do in high stakes testing situations, why is some people really choke in these high pressure situations versus other people thrive. Uh, and then from there, that sort of led me into studying math and, and math anxiety and really trying to understand sort of specifically in the math classroom what's going on um, and working to understand why it is for some, well, for so many people, they view the math classroom as really being this high pressure, high, high stakes kind of scenario. Um, so that's really what the majority of my, my research focuses on now, um, really looking at the interplay between sort of the cognitive um, cognitive factors, things like, um, you know, memory, different strategies you might use in terms of mathematics, looking at things like visual spatial skills, uh, but then also trying to understand how the, the sort of warm factors, we might call it, right, the emotion, the anxiety, the attitudes, how that all comes into play as well. Um, yeah, so that's, you know, kind of in a, a nutshell, 
broadly speaking, what my lab looks at. So, so talk about the the jump from Chicago to, to Ottawa, because the University of Chicago, you know, this is a premier research university in the U.S. So uh, obviously, you know, you know, slouch to get into there like that. That is high quality stuff. So uh, what? Uh, tell us about your time there and then the, the move to Ottawa. Yeah, for sure. So um, when I was done my PhD, so I did my PhD at uh, University of Waterloo and absolutely loved every minute that I was there. Um, but knew I most likely wanted a, a position as a professor, um, and specifically a professor in Canada. Uh, so those jobs are pretty hard to come by. Um, <laughs> I want to no, just want to. There, I want a professorship in Canada, so I went to the U.S. No, I <laughs> know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's kind of that's kind of how you know that's. Uh, the way it works in a lot of cases, right? Like it's one of those, you go out, you explore, you kind of, you go somewhere else, you learn a new system, you, you know, learn new skills. So for example, when I was in, when I was at Waterloo, uh, most of my work was really working with undergraduate students. So trying to understand um, math and, and math anxiety, but particularly in adults. And so one of the advantages that I had when I went to Chicago was I was working predominantly with children and elementary school teachers. So uh, went there to to really hone sort of a different skill set to spend more time in the classroom um but then also in really diverse classrooms so did a lot of work in you know uh high tuition private schools a lot of work in lower sort of socioeconomic schools a lot of work in charter schools in the u.s so got to really be in a lot of different classrooms and see commonalities and differences kind of across across the socioeconomic status level uh and in and in the u.s it's it's quite diverse um so that was one of the things one of the advantages i guess to to being in chicago um i also got to work with some really fantastic people and it was yeah it was a ton of fun learned a lot uh, but chicago was never home so home was always going to be it got to the point where home was Canada, broadly speaking. Um, <laughs> where do you live? I'm from up north. I know. It was like, yeah, so home, you know, like at one point in my life, home used to be Cornwall, Ontario, which is where I grew up. And then all of a sudden home was Ontario. And then home just got to be Canada. There's just anyway, like, you know, go to, go to BC for a conference. And it was like, I'm home. <laughs> Tell me, so, show me your old neighborhood. Well, my home's actually thousands of kilometers away, but I'm home. <laughs> but I've crossed that threshold. I'm back in Canada. Um, yeah, so no, the, the goal was always to end up back in Canada. And uh, so I ended up, after the University of Chicago, uh, taking a bit of a different path. I ended up leaving academia for a while and working for the government. Also loved that experience. Um, you know, got to learn a little bit more about how policy is actually made in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was great. Um, loved that. And then, yeah. And then the opportunity at, at university of Ottawa came up and it was absolutely a dream job opportunity. So I took that, uh, I think it's about four years ago now and still here, not planning on leaving, you know, loving it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I'm really looking forward to getting into this with, let's just dive into it then. Like your, your, your main focus right now is on math anxiety and, and, and the math classroom. So what have you learned about math instruction and, and learning that could really be a benefit to people that we may not know about? Cause there's a lot out there. Well, what are some things we, we should know that you've uncovered that we should know about? Yeah. So, okay. So that question is one that I think is, I think it's an awesome question. 
And I think it's really, really hard to answer. So that's my, my upfront kind of caveat. Um, and especially when you frame it as though what you don't know, because I always find one of the things that comes up so much in, in the work that I do is one, I think we need better communication between researchers and teachers and teachers and researchers, because sometimes, you know, on the research side of things, sometimes we'll study something for years and then feel like we've come up with some amazing conclusion, bring it to teachers and teachers are like, yeah, obviously, like (laughs) we're we're on the front lines, like we know that. And then there's other times where teachers will come to us and say like, oh, this thing really works. And then you, you go and you study it and you come back and say like, doesn't seem to be any evidence for this. So it's, I think that's one of the things that I care a lot about in the job that I do and, and really try to work towards is, is building that communication. So that is my sort of caveat to before I tell you anything that you already know. And then I, again, feel like, well, there goes 15 years. Um, but I will say, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that have really come out of, of the type of research that um, my team and I have been doing is one, how multifaceted mathematics is, right? So um, we'll often talk about children struggling with mathematics and, you know, the government will often come out and say things like, we need educational reform and so we need new curriculum. We're going to teach new things. We're going to, and I think that sort of solution is just not, um, it's a short-sighted solution, right? I think there's so many pieces that need to be taken into consideration. So not only is it, the way teachers are, are teaching math that matters, and that certainly does matter, right? And, and I think there's a ton of evidence to suggest that some sort of combination of, you know, an inquiry-based learning and uh, learning by rote is going to be the best approach, right? Like, I think it's not going to be an all or nothing. There's, there's certainly evidence to suggest that you want to take you want to take multiple approaches, I think, to teaching mathematics, But then also keeping in mind that the children's attitudes are going to matter a lot, right? So for a teacher, I think you're you're not going to have success with a child who is not willing to be successful, right? So a child who is not ready, sorry, willing and ready to learn, I think there needs to be a different strategy maybe with that child than with a child who is really eager and is really mastery oriented and is super excited to learn math for the sake of learning math and sees the beauty in it, right? Um, those are going to be different challenges. And then, and also in the same vein, parents are going to matter a lot too, right? So parents have a huge influence on how well their children are going to do in mathematics, um, especially in the really early stages, right? So when you've got a child coming into kindergarten, that child's um, numerical and mathematical competencies coming into into kindergarten are going to be so closely tied to what sorts of activities the parents are doing with the child at home and the parents' own attitudes and beliefs about mathematics. And so I think, you know, if anything, one of the things that, that we've really been learning over the last number of years is just that a child, whether or not a child, whether or not a student is going to be successful in mathematics has so many factors leading into it that there's not going to be a simple answer right? There are going to be so many different things that one needs to, to take into consideration and that anyone who's trying to sell you sort of a magic bullet approach is probably... Never an uh, education. We never have <laughs> Probably oversimplifying things to a detriment is what I, I think I would say. Um, but, all of the, but the flip side to all of that, right? I think one of the really cool things about all of that is that if you have a child who is struggling 
it means that there are so many different things that you can try. And there are so many tools that you can have in your toolbox to help this child that just because one thing doesn't work does not mean that the next thing is not going to work. Right. So I think it's, it can be overwhelming, but also incredibly exciting at the same time. So uh, at what point do like the severe intervention need to happen? Cause I taught grade eight math. And at that point, many of my students already had a formed opinion. I, I'm just, math sucks. I'm not doing it. And no matter which approaches I tried, they're just like, no, I don't want to do it. It sucks. Right. And it's kind of marked it. Is, is, is there a tipping point? Like I, I don't, like I said, it's not simple. It's not like, yeah, by grade three, if they're not there, they're not there. That, Cause that, that would just cause problems. But is, is there kind of a point where you're like, major intervention needs to happen earlier? So I think, I mean, in general, the earlier you intervene, the better, right? So we know that, especially when it comes to the attitudes um, with which kids are approaching mathematics, we know that as young as like first grade, um, children can start, or we do see evidence that children start endorsing stereotypes that girls aren't good at math, for example. So some of that stuff comes in really early. And I think, you know, the earlier we can, we can work to mold those beliefs, maybe <laughs> mold some of those attitudes in a, a more positive way, I think is, is good. Um, a lot of the research on math anxiety specifically seems to suggest that around sixth grade is when things really start to change. So that's when we really start to see, you know, kids becoming anxious about math and, and you can certainly see it before then, but around sixth grade is when it, there seems to be something that's changing there, that sort of middle school time where especially girls are starting to really start to become anxious about this. Um, their sense of self-efficacy in math really starts to decline. Um, so I think that time is a really important time to, to really help kids try to focus on the idea of mastering the material and that being more important than the grade that they're getting in it. Um, yeah, I think... Well, the one thing I think I was going to say, though, Vito, sorry, is just that I think attitudes can always be changed, though, right? So even by the time people are are adults, like there are always there's always opportunities to to sort of show people reasons maybe why to love math. I love what you're saying, too, because I was a student. Like I said, I struggled in math and it wasn't until I started reading science fiction, something that I really love. And as I got older and started getting into more hard science fiction, where there was actually things that were like real in it, where I had to then be like, I have no idea what this is talking about. So I had to learn like a mathematical concept or something like that. So I understood the story better. And I found the thing that made me passionate about math. And that's still happening today. Even Vito recently suggested a book to me and he's like, yeah, you're going to have to learn like three mathematical things about to, to understand. And I did. And I was like, it was no problem doing it because it was passions based. So I love what you're saying there. And, and that, that works across the board, right? You know, if you can, if you can start a fire in someone's heart for what they're doing, they're going to be more likely to work hard at it and more likely for it to be something that they want to explore. So I just, the things you're saying, Vito, mark it now, minute 2138, big vibes. <laughs> <laughs> big vibes. I'm putting it in. I will. Okay. I'm going to follow up on that with a little bit of, um, so, okay. I'm a, I'm a parent. I have two, I have two young children and like many parents, I, it is one of my missions to sneak vegetables into their lives. Right. So, mm -hmm. uh, much in the way that you can like puree cauliflower and put it in pretty much anything. Uh, 
we jokingly like puree math and put it in anything. Um, so I, I love the idea of like sneaking math into whatever you do, right? So, and my kids now are, my kids actually quite love mathematics and it probably has nothing to do with me, but I'm going to take some credit for it anyway, where <laughs> we'll do things like, you know, you write a poem and then you show them like, hey, do you see this pattern? Like, look, it's A, B, A, B. Like, this is a pattern and it's in your poem. Like, math is everywhere. Or, you know, there'll be coloring and the same kind of thing. Like, oh, look at this. Like, you know, here's different shades and this is darker and this is lighter. And here now we're going to start talking about magnitude and now we're going to change this into, you know, whatever it is we're going to do. And so it's, we joke a little bit about the idea of like mathematizing everything or yeah, like sneaking math into whatever it is you do. Um, but I think really getting at exactly what you're saying with, with um, the science fiction stuff, Chris. So like I hated math until I realized that I loved statistics and I, the way I could like justify it for a while was I kept telling myself that statistics wasn't math. It was just logic, but I mean, realistically it's logic with a lot of numbers and, you know, it got to the point where I realized that I was spending like six, seven, eight hours a day playing with data and loving it, but hating math. And yeah, it wasn't until, you know, you sort of, it was this like backdoor way in that I was like, oh, yeah, I just ate a bunch of metaphorical cauliflower. Like, <laughs> nice. I love it. Oh, no. Oh, no. I like math. <laughs> You didn't uh, tell me. Thank, thank you for that. Because especially when it comes to math instruction, there's a lot of debate about how to approach it. And everyone wants their way, it seems. Uh, but even let's let's like zoom out even further. You, you are the director of cognition and uh, emotion, uh, that laboratory at the University of Ottawa. Uh, and so you have are on the cusp of like the cognitive development of children having two of your own. So you're knee deep in this. How can we navigate all this endless information about that? Like how to best raise and infuse our children with these ideas. Cause it seems there's like, just you go to the bookstore aisle and there's endless thing, do this, you know, or this is the best way to raise your kid. And this is the best way to have a baby or whatever the case may be. How, how do we navigate that? So I think, I think that's a really tough question, right? In that, um, I think as, so I, you know, I don't envy the role that, that you guys have as teachers in the sense that I think you are always getting information thrown at you and it's coming from a million different ways. And, you know, you're expected to not only make sense of this and implement it in your own classroom, you're expected to do it within the confines of a curriculum, within the confines of a particular principal in a particular school. And like, so it's, I certainly, I can appreciate I think that that's incredibly challenging. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if I have a great answer for you in the sense that I tend to, with a lot of my teacher friends, uh, they will bounce ideas off of me or email and say like, Hey, do you have a paper you can send me about this? Or, you know, whose research can I follow on this? And so we, I tend to take a very like research informed approach to life. You know, we used to joke, my husband and I would joke that we engaged in like evidence-based parenting, um, so like, but, but I mean, that's something that I, you know, I'm, I am super privileged to have access to all these journal articles and stuff. Cause so many of them are behind paywalls. Right. So uh, I, for many of my teacher friends, I will, I will give them access to that information as best I can. And, and I trust that 
you know, they're smart enough to read through things and decide what stuff makes sense versus what doesn't. But I think that's hard. And I think like, I, I joke, I have a buddy of mine who's a vice principal now, but he was a math consultant for years. And, and we joke that like everybody needs a researcher friend and like every researcher needs a teacher friend. But honestly, other than them saying like, find a really good researcher friend <laughs> and then you could be their teacher friend. To be honest with you, though, what I'm really hearing from you is like collaborative learning together, whether it's someone who's an actual researcher or whether it's a group of teachers who get together and say, I'm going to read this article, this one and this one, you read these ones, and we're going to come back and talk about them. See, what I'm really hearing is like, yeah, like every teacher should have a researcher friend. And every teacher should be someone's researcher friend um, for, you know, uh, you know, professional collegiality and, and learning together. And I, I love that. So like every year seems like a different trend is coming through. Uh, like, should we just take these with a grain of salt then? Or should we get our research friend and be like, help? So I, no, I think both, right? Like, and I, going back, I guess, to that comment from the beginning, which is just, I don't think there's a magic bullet because like education is about so much more than any one thing, Right. So that's where I think, you know, if you want to say that, yeah, I I don't want to pick any particular concept as a, as an example to pick on, but I just, I don't think there's going to be any one magic thing, right? Um, I think they're all going to matter and they're all going to matter to some degree. And so I think that as a teacher, you, you kind of pick and you, you know, like also use your common sense. Like you're in the classroom, you're on the front lines, you know right? Like you have a pretty good idea. Like I'm always amazed at, so I'll go and give PD talks to teachers. And the first few times I would even mention the idea of, of learning by rote, I was a little bit terrified um, because I like, frankly, the research on this is, is pretty compelling, right? Like if you can get to the point where you understand your math facts automatically and you could be drilled on them and you can, you can spit them out, that's incredibly helpful when you go to learn more complex math. Right. And the idea is that you're not spending all this headspace trying to do the calculation. So you can actually then take that that solid foundation and apply it to more complex mathematics and get it faster. Versus if I'm constantly trying to calculate basic arithmetic on my hands, it's just it's more difficult. Right. And there's there's decades of research to suggest that this is the case. And I remember the first time that I went into a classroom and I I or a PD session, sorry, and I was even mentioning this idea that. You know, like maybe automating math facts is, is okay. And I said it really hesitantly. And everyone, every teacher there said like, yeah, of course it's okay. And I just thought like, okay, <laughs> like it's going to be okay. And it was just, you know, the fact that, you know, you don't work with kids for 15, 20 years and argue that or not many people, at least in my experience, have worked with children for 15 or 20 years and will argue that learning your time staples is not important, right? But certainly it's not the only way to teach. And I think that we can spark kids' interest and creativity by doing more of the inquiry-based learning. And so that's where I think, you know, as teachers, for teachers, I think you can trust your instincts on things a lot too. They're probably not wrong, but you can also teach in a way that's like research-informed you know, so you're, you can let your instincts be informed by research as well. I think there's not going to be one solution that's going to fix everything. I think, you know, be careful of the trends that are coming out, but also look at the trends and you know, if they make sense, then okay. Right. So 
growth mindset is obviously something that is incredibly important or incredibly popular, right? And I, I myself have done some work on growth mindset. Like I think there's definitely, there's something to it, right? There's something to the idea that teaching kids that, you know, if you work hard at it, then you are more likely to do well at it. Right. Now, with the with growth mindset, sorry, sorry to interrupt here. That's also a very misunderstood um, idea as well. Like we always get the bite-sized chunks at the end of it, but when you actually look at the the initial research, it's it's a way very complex. It's not as easy as just say this and the kids will be great again. Like yeah, it, it's it's a bit more complex, is it not? It is. It is more complex. So it's complex, but it also I think it can be boiled down to the idea that you know some people believe that. Um, intelligence is something that is fixed and you're only a certain amount smart, right? And when it comes to math, those children are going to be children who are more likely to say things like, I'm not a math person. Some people aren't good at math. You know, I don't have a math brain. Um, Versus some people believe that intelligence is something that's more malleable, that, you know, if you work hard at math, then you will get better at it. I'm using math specifically, but this can apply to any area, right? And I think there, there's going to be limitations to this, right? Like I, you know, so even if I tried at my absolute best, I'm probably never going to be an NBA player, right? So there are some limitations. That said, I can, you know, I can work really hard and improve my basketball skills, right? So I think that kind of idea that teaching kids that, you know, even if something is difficult, if you work hard at it, then you will get better. But if you don't work at it, you're not going to get better, um, like, I think that can be sort of the take home from, from a lot of the growth mindset work. Um, but you also, there still has to be that next step, right? So just, just getting kids to endorse the idea is not enough. They actually have to put the effort in. Me sitting on my couch eating popcorn and thinking like, if I work really hard, I'm going to be an NBA player. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to improve anything, right? You have to then actually go that additional step and like do the work. We um, have this. We have this yeah. fabulous teacher at my at my school, and she's a math teacher. And in fr- on on her door, when you're walking in the classroom, it says something like, "I'm not a math person." And then she has this poster that says, "How to do math? Step one: Do math." <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's one thing that I always. Yeah, like one thing that I, so I'm always a little bit hesitant because I feel like it's very cynical of me. Um, But so often people will ask you like, what's the trick to getting better at math, right? Like what is the, what's the secret sauce? And it's do more math. Like You heard it it here, folks. You heard it (laughs) here, listeners. The secret sauce, the magic bullet, (laughs) Dr. Harry Maloney. Oh God. Right? Like I think there's obviously there's going to be other, you know, like how do we get kids more engaged, et cetera. I think are important questions, but at the end of the day, like the way we improve is doing something and doing it over and over again and doing it in different scenarios and doing it, thinking about it in different ways. And I think that's still going to be the main, the main thing. Right. So what role uh, does technology play in a mathematics classroom? Has your research uncovered something like, you know, going on and like doing Khan Academy lessons or IXL or all these other like fun ga- math games does that contribute at all or is it just part of the puzzle or is that just engagement or is that actually going to help with the math skills and then again does that go hand in hand because if the engagement's there the time is going to be spent if the time is spent then there's going to be improvement yeah so I think 
Um, I think EdTech, when used properly, it can be incredibly effective. I think, you know, one caveat to parents, though, is that there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there that hasn't actually been vetted. So just because it's a game that's got math in it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be helpful. Uh, but I think that there are a lot of, you know, math, like a lot of gamified math things that are actually quite helpful. So I, I personally have not done a ton on this. Well, one thing I will say that um, we, ha- we have done some research on is this program called Bedtime Math. Um, and Bedtime Math is a, an app that you can get um, on Apple or any Apple device, sorry. Um, and it's an app that's designed for parents to use with young children. Uh, and the idea is that every night before bedtime, um, you know, you sit down with your child and you read this story. Uh, and then the story is going to have mathematical content embedded within it. And at the end of the story, you're going to answer a question together um, that's going to be aimed at your child's uh, current academic level. And that you can answer this question together. And it's a way to get parents and young children. So it's it's targeted specifically at children um, in first and second, or kindergarten, sorry, through end of first grade to really work together around mathematics. And there, what we find, which I think is incredibly interesting, um, is that when parents use this app, so when they use the app with the children, the children end up learning more math over the school year relative to their peers who would use like a reading equivalent app. Um, But also one of the things that I think is really interesting is we know from from some of the research that my lab and I have done, we know that when parents themselves are really anxious about math and they help their kids a lot with math, then the children end up, so that homework help ends up backfiring and the kids end up learning less math over the school year. But this is no longer true when the parents are using the bedtime math app. So what we think is happening, right, is that by giving parents sort of a scaffolded way of interacting with their children around mathematics um, and really showing them, like, here's a good way in which to engage with math with your child, then the child only gets the benefits of having the parent engage and none of the sort of drawbacks of having a parent who's really anxious about math. Um, So that, you know, is taking it in a slightly different tangent in that it's not a the app is designed to be done with a parent and child together. It's not a set your child in front of it and make dinner. Um, but it's one that, you know, shows, I think, really promising um, promising results for all families in general who use it, but then more specifically for families where the parents are anxious about math. I know what app I will be downloading tonight. Right. I will tell you that I, even though we've done research on it, um, I don't get it. Like I don't get paid or anything for endorsing it. So there's no conflict of interest. Um, But I do. We will reach out and see if they will sponsor us. Bedtime, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no promises. (laughs) What's been the most surprising uh, discovery with your research? You've been there for four years. What's, what's surprised you the most? I think probably the finding that when parents themselves are really anxious about math and help the kids that it actually backfires. I think I had assumed that any kind of parental engagement was going to be good, but I think the finding that, you know, it's not always helpful uh, was probably the most interesting or one of at least one of the most interesting things to me. So when you say when the anxious parent helps that it's backfiring, are you do you mean like if the parent maybe isn't as comfortable so they're really pushing for the student to the child to be better at it 
Or do you mean the parent who is anxious in that, like, they know math so important, so we have to math, math, math? So uh, when we've looked at parent anxiety, we've actually just asked the parents, like, okay, you know, on a, a scale of one to five, how anxious do you feel in a variety of math-related situations? So, like, how anxious do you feel calculating a tip at a restaurant yourself? How anxious do you feel, you know, when you're looking at the change in your hand and deciding if you can buy that veto double-double? Like, you know, how <laughs> these sorts of situations. So you took the things I fear most in life and you said, do they also make you afraid? Pretty much, yeah. So, uh, and what you find is that it makes a lot of people afraid, right? Mm. So a lot of people feel a lot of anxiety in those sorts of situations. Um, and I think in our work, what we found is that, so when parents themselves are really anxious and they help their children, Right that anxiety is sort of transferring to the children. So over the course of a school year, the child themselves becomes more anxious and the child ends up learning less math relative to if that math anxious parent just didn't help. Um, so I think that sort of intergenerational transfer of, of math attitudes is something that I found incredibly interesting. Um, another thing that we found really interesting is uh, we've done some work looking at teachers, what happens when teachers are really anxious about math. Uh, so early elementary school teachers tend to have higher rates of anxiety about math um, than just the general population. And uh, that can also have consequences for the students in their classroom. So even in early elementary school, so looking in like grades one and grades two, uh, when the teachers are anxious, the kids end up learning less math relative to having a teacher who's not as anxious about math. Um, and that's even like the teacher's content knowledge about mathematics. So it's not that the teachers don't know what they're teaching. It's just that when they're not as confident with math in general, the students are learning less. Um, so we're still, we're still doing some research to try to figure out why is. My own kind of pet theory, I think, on what it is. Uh, my assumption is that the teachers who are really anxious about math are doing math in the classroom and they're not really like mathematizing anything else outside of it. So they're not pointing out the AB structure, finding other opportunities to do math. Interesting pet theory because it really pushes towards like differentiated instruction and instruction that takes in multiple perspectives and voices uh, and really inclusive instruction too. I, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So in general, I'm a huge fan of the idea of like cross-curricular kind of integration of, of all of these subjects. And I know I'm not using the right terminologies here, so forgive me, but um, yeah. They'll change in, general, in five years anyway. It doesn't matter. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm just ahead of the time. Just like five years from now, it's going to be like cross-curricular. <laughs> That's what you have so, to put on your business card. Dr. Aaron Maloney, just ahead of the times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just a smidgen ahead. <laughs> well, what you're mentioning is also we had a guest, Rola Tipshirani, that like this is what she did in her geography class. Like, okay, let's let's take a walk to where they're blasting for a new neighborhood. Oh, look, there's birds are dying. Why do you think that is? Okay, let's bring it back in. What can we do to help these birds? Let's get a 3D printer and build a bird cage and build a bird sanctuary. So she, like, you're in your geography class, but you're doing every subject under the sun with her. Um, like she she has no subject, I don't think. Um, so that, that I, I like that a lot. Um, but I think you. that does like it. Yeah. It just, it really solidifies what you're learning in different areas. Right. And it also, it lets you bring in 
So uh, for the kids who just don't like math, for example, if they really like geography class and they want to build a bird, like they want to build a birdcage, then you are going to need math in order to build this birdcage, right? Or if you are in math class and you really don't like math class, but you like geography and you want to, or that's the same analogy. Anyway, point just being that like, it allows you to import, you know, your own likes and, and interests into whatever the subject is that you're doing. And I think that's incredibly important for motivation. Well, that's it. If you buy into it, so will they. I love that. Uh, so what, uh, what, what do you think teachers should be unapologetic about in their practice? It's, it's something we're, I guess now. Okay. So I'll, I'll answer this in math specifically just because that's been kind of the vibe of tonight i'm getting uh, i'm kind of getting a bit of a vibe from you that you might be like i don't know into math i'm at least into understanding why people aren't into it <laughs> like, i love it i love it that's right yeah. um because i think one thing that teachers should be unapologetic about is the idea of like drilling your kids like drilling things like times tables and just basic arithmetic facts. Um, I know we talk about like drilling, it's going to kill motivation, but I think that uh, children succeeding really increases motivation. And so if we can, you know, if we can get it to a point where, where the kids can memorize these things and, and, and then be able to take it to, you know, take it to the next level, I think is really important. So I think, yeah, that, I think, teachers should be unapologetic about i can still remember how good i felt getting a hundred percent on the mad minute right i i still <laughs> to this day and the moment the moment multiplication uh division addition subtraction i was the guy i was so good the moment we got into like fractions and stuff is when i started to struggle but i still remember how good i hundred percent because i could do every times table one to twelve in under a minute and get perfect on it so i love what you're saying i love it hey Vito. hey chris you know what time it is i'm looking at my watch here you know what time it is oh i i, I see it's, everyone's, the hour it's everyone's least favorite time of the night my friend it is the pulse points, points time Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I never, I, I remember when I finished high school, I said, I'd never have to do math again. And then this happened. No, I'm just kidding. We look, what a blessing to be able to talk with Dr. Aaron Maloney tonight. Um, I was sitting here, Vito and Aaron, I know we're, this is an audio only podcast, but they can attest that I was like pumping my fist half the time. I was super into this. My friends, Pulse and point number one of the night, find your fit. Dr. Maloney, I wanted nothing more than to be an elementary school teacher. Uh-oh, that didn't work out. Didn't mean she left education. She found where she fit in it. And now she's doing amazing things. Hey, number two, there are some questions in teaching and some inquiry paths in teaching that are really, really hard to answer. It doesn't mean we don't try to answer them. Number three, my friends, we were talking about it in the context of math tonight, but student attitudes matter across any subject matter. And how do we engage with different attitudes? Because if we can engage with an, a negative attitude, we can turn it into a positive one. Hey, friends, there's nothing wrong with having a research approach to life. And, and friends, teachers, trust your instincts. 
but be informed. But Vito, Vito, Chris, we got the big vibes. We the got big the vibes, big vibes. Big vibes. Big vibe number one. Communication is key. Big vibe number two. There's no simple answers when it comes to teaching. Big vibe number three. Education is so much more than single concepts. And the biggest vibe of the night, my friends. The ultimate vibe from this evening. My friends, just like cauliflower for young kids, you can puree math into everything. So let's start pureeing our math. My friends, we've been so lucky tonight to talk with Dr. Aaron Maloney. The doctor was in the house and she put on a clinic. <laughs> Dr. Maloney, we'd like to thank you so much for being on the show with us. It was an honor and a blessing to hear from you. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Sorry. should probably disclose that I'm currently laughing hysterically here. <laughs> Thank you. So this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for letting me join. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so glad we got to have you. Excited to have you. And thank you for joining us for another episode of the Unapologist podcast. Join us next week when we'll talk with great people, learn new ideas, and tell the story of teaching as it happens. This is Vito and Chris signing off. Podcast.